how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Eric Newman got his start as a PA on the comedy Wayne's World. Working his way into the role of producer, Newman took on jobs like Dawn of the Dead, Children of Men, In Time, Robocop, and Hemlock Grove. Then in 2017, he started to use his knowledge as a producer to also write script for the series Narcos and now Narcos Mexico. For the sequel to Netflix's Narcos, Newman and company wanted to create something familiar but original to the Pablo Escobar world. Specifically, the newest version discusses the rise of the Guadalajara cartel as an American DEA agent learns the dangers of targeting narcos in Mexico. In this exclusive interview, Newman discusses the jump from producer to writer, why steadfast rules to writing is irrelevant, why it pays to have zero expectations as a producer, the importance of the film The Godfather, why surprises are actually worse than bad news, and the rise of the anti-hero in American cinema. If you enjoyed this interview, make sure to subscribe and also check out our new YouTube series, also called Creative Principles. I grew up in Los Angeles, and my family uh, was in the musical, the, the music end of the business. Um, and I, uh, so I, you know, I had, you know, grew up sort of in proximity to it and saw it and didn't seem like it was a bunch of geniuses, to be honest. And so I figured, hey, you know what, I may, I may be able to do that. Um, I went to film school at USC. Uh, I, my first job, I was a production assistant on the film Wayne's World. Um, and I, and it's just sort of stuck with me. I think that, um, being a producer seemed to be the, uh, a, a good place uh, to, uh, from which to to observe the whole process. You know, I, I liked being the originator of something, uh, at least sort of in concept. I, since I became a writer, uh, which I did very late in my career, um, or at least I became a acknowledged, paid, um, uh, employed writer. Uh, I maybe regret not doing more writing earlier, but um, it seemed and is uh, uh, seemed like and and is a tremendous amount of work. And I think that um, you know, to be honest, and not to disparage the hard work of producers everywhere, uh, producing is considerably easier uh, than than writing. Uh, and you know, my career has taken some sort of weird turns, um, but they've almost always been interesting. And uh, and uh, getting into television and getting into show running and writing um, 
as late as it is in my I did as, as late as I did in my career has been you know really the most satisfying creative experience professional experience in my life. So I'd imagine as a producer, you've read you know countless scripts. What were some of the lessons you kind of learned during your time as a producer that you now use as a writer? Well, it's funny. I I I don't have a lot of rules about producing. Um, I think that you know the mistake that we make, um, and probably this is true in any job, is that we we look at those who came before us and we expect our path uh, in success to be similar to their path. And the reality is the business is, is changing so rapidly and has always changed rapidly so that the generation that preceded you took a completely different path than, than, than you could possibly take. Um, and so I think that the lesson there, and it took a long time to, to to figure this out is that that the outcome is almost irrelevant. You, you have you know you 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 have to operate completely ignorant of the outcome um, and still do the work, uh, whatever it is, whether you're producing, writing, you know, pushing that boulder uphill, which is so much of of what this job is, uh, trying to get something that you feel that you're passionate about made. It pays to have no expectations except for tomorrow you're going to wake up and, and keep doing whatever it was you were doing. Keep pushing. Um, you know, I, I was very, very early in my career, I developed a philosophy um, that I don't mind bad news. I like good news. I just hate surprises. And I expect that. From you know, I, I expect an absence of surprises from the people that I work with, and I and and in return, I promise the same. Uh, you, you know, people tend not to want to tell you bad news um, because uh, nobody wants to tell you bad news unless there's something unless you're a little off, and then maybe you do like to tell people bad news. Um, but there is a tendency to you know, continue to put a smile on some, on, on, you know, a pig long after you should have told everybody that it's a pig. And, uh, and that was a lesson that's been sort of invaluable to me. What's the foundation of that? Is it just preparation or is it more about honesty? Like how do you kind of see that when you're hiring people? I think it's both. I think that it's, you, you know, you, you will make mistakes. Um, so, so, you know, you can't, you cannot prepare your your way out of anything. Yes, you have a you know increases the the chances of you know not making a mistake, being prepared. But at some point, you are going to make a mistake, and the, I believe the key is to uh, the moment you've made one, uh, or or you've the moment you've made one that you're not able to rectify on your own. Um, you know, raise the alarm. Um, and are there people who will penalize you for that? Of course, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily, unless it's a you know totally egregious mistake. Um, but you know, I, I think uh, you know being honest, straightforward, communicative is ju- just as important as being prepared, and and being prepared is extremely important. So I would say that. You know, if you have those two things going for you, you should be in pretty good shape. I think you can, you know, uh, overcome an absence of, you know, of talent, maybe even.
I actually just read this book um, called Difficult Men, and it kind of focuses on the anti-heroes from Tony Soprano to Walter White. And I see a credit you have is uh, NYPD Blue, and actually sorts that as one of the first really anti-hero shows. How do you kind of see that? Do you, do you see, um, are there certain principles you look for in the characters? Are they anti-heroes? Are they villains? As far as some of your previous work, and then obviously in Narcos as well. It's funny, you know, there's a, I am credited for some reason with having written an episode of NYPD Blue, but I, I haven't. I, oh, wow. okay. I don't know. I don't quite know how that appeared in my IMDb um, page, but there it is. And I've asked them about it and they've told me they'll get back to me, but I've, I never, <laughs> they never asked. Um, I, I believe this sort of, a, not even American, it's global, the human obsession with anti-hero, uh, with the anti-hero, I think is, it's born of a lot of things. I think that there's certainly um, resistance to, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of social norm, the so, social expectation, um, you know, the, the you know, anti-heroes very much are a celebration of, of the individual, um, because by the nature of, you know, being against something, you know, a character is an anti-hero is against something. Um, and I think, you know, there's something, I think, on a, on a human level, very appealing about having the courage to stand alone, particularly since we are all subject to the same, you know, peer pressures and fears and, and you know, wanting to, you know, conform. But I think a for me, and, and it's something that I've thought quite about, uh, quite a, a lot about on, on with Narcos. There's an empowerment to someone like Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano will, uh, in his the course of his life, in his day, you know, he'll encounter the same slights and injuries and injustices that we encounter, but he's able to throw that, you know, rude guy through the window, you know, or the, the maitre d' that won't feed us or the, you know, whoever it is who's, you know, the, the neighbor who, who is, you know, uh, complaining about our, the fact that we left our trash cans in the street. And, and, you know, we all, we're all sort of subject to this, this, um, we all have the, the ability to feel small, and to feel like, but to feel powerless. And these anti-heroes, you know, particularly these sort of, you know, gangster types, they're, you know, it's a fantasy for us to be able to, you know, tell our neighbor what to do with our, with our trash cans and be able to back it up. Um, and I think that that's uh, a very relatable fantasy. It's, it's a little bit like being a superhero. I saw an interview you did um, about Narcos where you said, we don't make excuses, but we do show kind of an explanation for their behavior. Is this just a matter of pers- perspective or like, how do you show that, you know, empathy with a villain like this or like these? Well, one of the great things about television versus film as a medium is particularly when you're dealing with, with bad guys is that in a two and a half hour movie, if you see a character blow up an airplane or 
uh, or, or kill an innocent person, or you know, you any you know any any number of crimes uh, that you could see someone commit, where it would be impossible in that two and a half hour stretch to redeem them. You just can't. You don't have enough time. And in television, when you have ten hours, you can have a character blow up an airplane in one episode. And three or four episodes later, you're, you're marveling at how connected he is to his wife and his children. Our goal on the show was always to humanize these people because, you know, I have a, a, a strong belief that the worst thing that we can do with our villains, whether they be on screen or, out, or, or, or real villains out in the world, is to make them one-dimensional. You know, that guy is a bad guy, period. And the danger there is that you miss that, you know, that, that no one is just evil. You know, the evil people don't just spring forth from the womb. They're created by a lot of factors, um, you know, environment, um, you know, you could, you, you, you know, you, victimization, um, uh, economic disparity. There are a lot of things that go into determining whether someone is going to do good in society or do bad in society. And so it's always been our goal to sort of explain, without excusing it, because obviously we don't condone any number of things that we feature on the show, but we should be able to look at them and say, oh, this person at some point made a choice, but it wasn't as clear as we would have believed. And once we've sort of experienced their lives, uh, you know, in a more intimate way, we're, we, we, we hopefully come to some understanding that, wow, this is much more complicated than we thought. And again, never to, uh, never to excuse, but, but certainly, uh, to, to explain. Are you looking at, um, you know, kind of villains in cinema history when you're creating some of these characters or is everything completely, uh, more so focused on what things that actually happened or could happen in these stories? You know, I look at, of, of course, there are certain um, uh, uh, obvious parallels that you can draw to, um, you know, Scarface, not just, you know, the, the Al Pacino Scarface, but the Paul Muni Scarface. There's a lot of James Cagney gangster stuff. You know, there's a lot, you know, there was a great, you know, that was a, that kind of white heat um uh, public enemy era of, of gangster movies. Obviously, The Godfather we talk about all the time in the writers' room. I mean, I think probably we probably talk about The Godfather as much as any as any other uh, film or television show. But we also talk about more sort of contemporary things like um, uh, 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 Fauda, you know, which is a, a, a uh, Israeli show. Or we had we looked at you know Gamora, which is an Italian crime show. I mean, I'm I'm a huge consumer of 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 filmed entertainment. Always have been, and you know our we'll talk about you know each season of our show. We're now on season five. We'll have sort of a a model, tonal, stylistic, you know. And sometimes, you know, it's been it's been Scarface, but it's also been Downfall, um, you know, the Oliver Hirschbeagle movie about Hitler in the bunker, 
um, which is sort of a fascinating movie if you've seen if you've seen anything. And what's really cool about Downfall, it's about it's Hitler's last days in the bunker. You are you're able to forget who these people are because you're you're with them in the bunker. You're you're in the you know you're you're the Russians are coming. They're all going to die. Some of them have their children with them. They followed this man who has you know led them to ruin. He knows it. He's collapsing and you know is 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 sort of gone to seed. Uh, you know certainly mentally, um, and you forget who they are and what they did, and you're with them experiencing this horrible ending to, you know, to Nazi Germany. And it's, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, sort of amazing accomplishment that you actually care about, you know, Joseph Goebbels, um, who's one of the worst people of the century. You know, Hitler's the worst, probably the worst person of the century. But what Hirschbiegel does in taking you into this is you, you, you relate to them. Do you agree? You know, do you agree with them? No, of course not. And are you happy that they die? Yes, and that's true of Pablo Escobar. But when you're on the ride with him and the walls are closing in, you feel for him. And I think that we never, ever, ever. Uh, uh, it is always a benefit, great benefit, to have a you know to be able to uh, relate to other people. You know, the the, the more human we can be. Uh, the better off we all are. So uh, that's, you know, a little bit of our design. What's, what's kind of the big picture um, for Narcos in terms of like the Narcos universe? Uh, uh, again, that book I mentioned uh, reminded me of, I was watching The Wire, you know, each season is a different um, take on what's going on in that city. How do you kind of see these different stories where we're not following so much of a, a single narrative with a certain character? How do you how do you have this? Do you have just a big picture in mind of everything that's going to happen in all these seasons? Yeah, I, you know it's funny. I I I'm, you're catching me sort of. At, I'm about halfway through season five, and I'm really starting to, to talk about where it goes. And you know, it's been a it's not an easy it's not an easy show to 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 mount because. You know, we don't have the advantage of, you know, returning characters and a continuing story along one one line. You know, we've we've had to effectively reinvent the show three times now, you know, obviously beginning with Pablo Escobar and then in Cali post Escobar and then Mexico. And uh, you know, the the, the I have always, from the very beginning, and this is an idea that I, I had in 1997, was to do something, you know, in the drug war, or something, you know, a, you know, I had wanted to do uh, a a story in Colombia about the DEA, you know, fighting the, you know, the, the the drug war and 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 Escobar and the Cali cartel, and I always had a. Uh, a dream that it would lead to other things, you know, uh, or rather a vision that would lead to other things and, and within the universe. And there is sort of what you find when you get into the research of this world, which I have been pretty heavy in for now a long time, 
the interconnected nature of all of these people. It is like a, you know, the Marvel universe. It is like Star Wars. It is, but it's real. These guys all know each other. They all worked with each other at one time or another. Some of them worked under, you know, the, the, the Felix Gallardo, for example. He ran the Guadalajara cartel, and some of the biggest names in the business were his lieutenants. And then they went out on their own, and they started killing each other. And, then, and, and they all know each other. They all, you know, are related in one way or another. I thought that was fascinating. I thought that the opportunity um, for... for uh, dramatic storytelling, you know, where a bunch of, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar to Game of Thrones, it, except it's true and it happened. So uh, I would say that the, you know, the operating philosophy of the show is, is the narco universe. It always was the narco universe. You know, the star of the, of the show is cocaine. That is our, you know, cocaine is our recurring character. And, and, you know, it, it continues on and will continue on forever because unfortunately, you know, there is no real strategy, you know, the only, there's no strategy in place to defeat it. You know, the, the, you know, you'll never conquer, um, a drug problem. You know, the, the, the war on drugs can never be won while you focus on the, the supply. You have to focus on the demand and in order to do that, you have to look at it like a healthcare crisis rather than a you know law enforcement crisis. But anyway, that's all another story. I spoke with an author named uh, Neil Thompson, and he like two of his books. One of them was about astronauts, where there's just tons and tons of records. One of them was about moonshiners, where there's no information; everyone's still secretive about it. Um, did you guys, are you guys finding all the research you're like, are you being able to find all the research and everything in this era? Or are you also using, you know, some modern things in politics and then putting them uh, in a different time period for these pieces? You know, it's a little bit, uh, you know, we're not, we try not to bring, uh, the, the politics of the day into the show. Um, it's not easy to do because obviously we are all subject, you know, whatever side you're on, you know, you, you can't help, but, um, it can't help but seep into the things you do write and, and say, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, of research. Some of it is, um, a little shoddy. Um, there's a lot of, of speculation and conjecture and, and the like, um, you find that there are experts on small sort of microcosms of you know little corners of of the of the drug game, but but very rarely do I encounter someone who who knows you know a fair amount about everything. Um, you know, there's a lot of court record. There are a lot of things that, you know, in our case, a lot of things were that were not proven that we know to be true, that were not proven, you know, in a, in a court of law. And that, you know, is a little tricky. Uh, you know, how do you tell a story that you know is true when the people in it have, you know, got away with it? And, you know, it, it, it happens. But, uh, but we've been very lucky to have access to, you know, some, you know, some people who, we're very close to the story, if not, you know, in the center of the story. It sounds like the research kind of leads the the timeline, but are there pieces, when you're thinking big picture, 
Are there moments where you're like, well, I should save this for season three or season four? Like, are you precious or do you go ahead and just put everything in there and make it each season the best as possible? And then we worry about that next step when we get to it. No, no, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm always wait, uh, uh, thinking ahead and think, you know, we often will have conversations where we say, you know, man, that's a good story, but let's save that for down the road. Um, in fact, you know, as recently as, as, you know, a week ago, there was a big event that, you know, I had been hoping to save for, you know, future seasons, but it just fit right into where we needed it. Um, this season. So, you know, we, we're, we tend to, we play with the timeline a little bit, not much, but a little bit, you know, we'll condense things and, you know, sometimes things will happen a little closer um, together than, than they had. Uh, but we will, you know, we'll, we'll we try to stretch it out, um, you know, in the way that is most satisfying to the audience, but also, is you know is is the most uh, uh, authentic and and you know the, the truest version. I've seen. Can you kind of elaborate on that? I've seen some other interviews where you talked about authenticity in cinema. What does that kind of mean to you? And how do you look at that as as a writer and producer? Oh, I mean, you know, authenticity is is everything. I mean, I think that you know there's a certain level of expectation. You know, I would say there are three forms. Of, of authenticity uh, that are that are uh, I believe consciously or, and in some cases unconsciously an audience um, really responds to one you know is is sort of the the you know the truth something that is true you know you want you know there's certain whether it's all the president's men or you know or narcos or or um, you know the king's speech you know you're you're the contract that you're entering into into the audience is that you are telling the closest version to the truth that you can, understanding that that even documentary films are subjective. You know, even some even something that by its nature is is you know uh, is supposed to be a non a work of nonfiction. Um, it's it's still made through the eyes and through the point of view of a filmmaker. And you can watch as you probably have two documentaries on the same subject, uh, and, and feel like, you know, you're, uh, you feel like, you know, you've seen two different movies, you know, two different completely, you can have two completely different opinions born of, you know, the same documentary. So there, there, there is that sort of, you know, promise of the truth. And that's important to us, obviously, because you know what we're telling is a true story. The second one is is just a a general authenticity in sort of the 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 world of you know of drama, you know, people behaving the way that they that you would behave. You know, when you see someone, you know, it's like there's you know there's no quicker or better sign of bad writing when you're watching something and you're like, I would never do that. Why is he going in there? What, like, you know, you, you'd be this sort of inexplicable character. You know, you, you're, you're hoping that everything you do is sort of a, as a, you know, that, that other human beings, when they watch it, that, that they're not, they don't cry bullshit because someone's doing something that, you know, that someone would never do. And the third and perhaps un- most underrated, um, I love to reference alien because it's one of my favorite movies, but, 
What Alien does so effectively is that it takes this incredibly uh, uh, far-fetched premise of you're, you're on a spaceship in the future, and there's a mon- an alien monster on that spaceship chasing you down and killing you. And what that movie does very well is it establishes an authenticity from the, f- from the first you know, few minutes of the movie where all these guys wake up on a spaceship, they're deep, deep, deep in outer space, and they're not talking about, you know, the gammon quadrant and, you know, whatever, you know, aliens they ran into last week. They're talking about how the guys that work downstairs don't get paid as much as the guys who work upstairs. And to audiences, immediately, even, you know, 1979 offices who, uh, audiences who had no you know, real, other than those kind of 50 sci-fi movies that maybe they had seen when they were kids, they had no real, you know, way to, 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 to tap into, you know, to buy into this premise. They instantly said, oh, I get it, I'm at work. I under, that's what my work is like, you know. So that, the power of that, of being able to say, oh, I, I can relate to, even though these people are so different than I am, they're having a they're in a scenario that feels very relatable and very authentic and and that makes a tremendous amount of difference and so you know we sort of seek to do all three of those on narcos and you know sometimes we pull it off and sometimes we don't that's a really interesting uh perspective i think we're coming up on time um kind of that that third um thing you mentioned remind me i I know you worked on bright and there's a bright two coming out are there any details you can let us know about that no, I can't. I can't. I'm, not, I'm not allowed to, but uh, but I'm hopeful. What was your kind of? Um, I mean, obviously, like fans loved it. There's going to be a sequel. There's some some critic problems, things like that. But I mean, how do you kind of see the new the new realm we're in? I mean, where fans really get to have more of a vote rather than just you know whatever box office success that they used to relate to more so in the past. You know, I think that uh, I I. Don't certainly think that you know audiences having a voice about you know what they want to see and what they would have liked to have seen is great. Um, I think that you know uh, I I do hope because I I feel like not every film is made for everyone. You know I think that there you know there's definitely you know a, a I wouldn't call it an art film but I'd say there's more sort of selective audience. You know, I've watched a lot of technology uh, happen in even my 25 years of, of doing this. Um, and I don't know that films are better because of it. I think that, um, you know, it's it, there's a lot more noise maybe. But I don't believe that, you know, all of these advances, including sort of audience, you know, uh, uh, interactivity or input, you know, the preview process. I don't know that it necessarily, you know, as they've refined it, I don't know if it's made movies better. Um, I think that maybe it's made people more involved. You know, I think that, you know, people are, for example, I mean, obviously this, you know, we're, we're at the, you know, we're in the wake of an enormous event, uh, the Avengers, you know, the, the, the box office of the Avengers is just, you know, staggering. And I think that's a product of, you know, the, the marketing reach 
But I think, and I don't know him, but I think that a tremendous amount of this is due, which has not changed at all. At the end of the day, there's some guy or some man or woman at the center, usually one person who's at the center of this that, that isn't necessary. Maybe he's listening, you know, selectively. But I think, you know, Kevin Feige is that guy, in my opinion. I don't, again, I don't know him, but there's just too much quality stuff coming out of the Marvel camp for there not to be someone at the helm who is, and to bring us full circle, who is a great producer and has great script instincts and is, you know, is in control. Um, I think that, you know, the danger of what, you know, big audience input is the same danger of movies by committee. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Now, does every filmmaker who gets to make decisions about, you know, what their movie's going to be and what's in it deserve to have that power? Probably not. I think there are a lot of people, um, you know, uh, who, who, who don't deserve it and have it. But when you see something great, I promise you, there's one person who is actually, at the end of the day, carrying the ball, making the decisions. It's Benioff and Weiss. It's Kevin Feige. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, pick your guy. I'm trying to think of who else I'm really in awe of right now. Um, Matt Weiner, um, you know, there's, there's, there, these are, you know, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, like she's clearly a genius. And when she's in control of something, it's, it's great. So, Anyway, I think that that, at the end of the day, you know, it's, maybe it's more fun for the audience, maybe it's easier to reach the audience, but, but, you know, but I never believe that, you know, creative by committee is a good idea, particularly a committee of millions. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.